Welcome to the Anthropology and Business Podcast, where you'll learn about the many ways anthropology is applied in business and why business anthropology is one of the most effective lenses for making sense of organizations and consumers. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in advertising, marketing, consumer behavior, organizational culture, user experience, and many other roles, you'll learn firsthand what it means to do business anthropology and how the work differs from academic anthropology. We'll discuss issues like the pace and depth of research in business, our visibility and influence as practitioners, and what we can do to build our brand. We will also focus on the value and impact of our research in business so that we can help business leaders understand why they should be hiring anthropologists. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Matt Arts of the Anthropology and Business Podcast. I'm here today with Nathalie Bechet, who's a digital anthropology researcher at, at L'Atelier BNP Paribas. And Nathalie explores the intersection of data science and anthropology, holding degrees in both. And so, Nathalie, thanks for joining me today. Would you mind by telling everybody how you got interested in both anthropology and data science? Sure. Well, first, thanks. Thanks a lot for having me. So, um, how did I start it? How did I start anthropology? Actually, I thought about this, and I think um, I started anthropology because I was a very anxious child. <laughs> And that might sound a bit, uh, that might sound pessimistic, but it isn't. It's just that um, I've always been very overwhelmed with the gigantism of the world and with social norms. I didn't really get why people shake hands, why they get married and say they regret it the whole time. Why do girls wear dresses and boys pants? Just, I, I just had a hard time with norms. And I found out that social sciences study all of that and they give you explanation on why does it work that way. And the fact that depending on where you live, it's not always the same. So it's a construction. And this was so reassuring for me. And it just gave me the, the tools that I needed to read the world around me. So I think that's how I got into <laughs> anthropology out of anxiety. <laughs> um, but it turned out great in the end. So it's a, it's a, it's a happy end story. And otherwise, yeah, I started. So I started in sociology. And I had a minor in anthropology um, for my bachelor's degree. And, uh, and as soon as I started more classes in anthropology, I loved sociology. But I had classes, the first classes I had in anthropology were about cannibalism and incest. And I was like, whoa, okay. Uh, speaking of anxiety, this is perfect. Um, so that's how I figured that I really wanted to do this exclusively. So I found a a bachelor degree that would do only soft, uh, only anthropology, and uh, and I specialized more in religious and urban anthropology. Uh, so it feels that I was just just more passionate uh, about, and uh, I kept on going like that until my master's degree. And um, for my anthropological field, I studied. Uh, I decided to do a field work in Taiwan, where I studied Taoist feng shui principles apply to urban architecture and especially skyscrapers. And uh, as I did my study in Taiwan and I worked about urban anthropology and just the modern world, 
um, and how it's adapting, how religion and, and, the, and modernity are adapting to each other. I found out that my interests in anthropology were not so appreciated by my teachers, and I didn't get much support. And I felt like I wasn't really in the mold of academic anthropology. The, the students that really got the scholarships and, and were praised by teachers were students studying like yak farming in Nepal. And really my Taipei skyscrapers were in of interest. Um, but not only did I found this out, but I also find out that I, I didn't have any classes really about applied anthropology. And I didn't have much classes that were about contemporary issues. You know, I didn't have any class that helped me navigate global warming or the housing crisis, digitization, online spaces. All of that was totally eluded from the, the type of classes that I could have in anthropology. And I felt like I just wasn't, I felt like I started anthropology to be connected to the world and I was totally disconnected somehow. Um, I was also very passionate about computing. I've always been about gaming, about internet, online spaces. I've always been very connected and, um, and I had no anthropological angle or perspective on this. So I thought, okay, um, after my first master's degree, I thought I, I need to work first for financial reasons and, uh, and I need to find something that's more applied. And that's how I started the second master's degree um, in data science and digital sociology. And there's something that exists in France. Uh, it's called alternance. So it's about alternating uh, like half of the time you study and the other half you work for a company that does something highly relevant or related to the study that uh, you're doing. And uh, you could do that for a year, two years, three years. And uh, very often the company just hires you afterwards because they've trained you. So uh, it's a, a very efficient way to get employed and to do something related to your studies. And that's what happened for me. And uh, in the second master's degree, so it was in data science and digital sociology, which means that we were trained to do data science, to code, to learn some computing languages, to collect online data, to uh, also process this data and make sense of this data, qualitative and quantitative. We would work with computer engineers and learn not to become computer engineers ourselves because it was only uh, a year, one year. So we couldn't be engineers ourselves, but we had the language to be able to talk with computer engineers and understand what is going on in terms of uh, digital data. Uh, and at that time, my second master's thesis uh, happened to be about um, Twitter and uh, the anti-Asian um, racism movement that happened on Twitter when COVID started. So I studied Twitter was my new anthropological field at the time. And that's kind of how I became a digital anthropologist, by, uh, by really training to know how to navigate online spaces, having the tools to do that, and also thinking that digital spaces in themselves could be the object of my studies from now on. And, uh, and I started working full-time for L'Atelier, who was at the time training me during my master's thesis. And that's how everything started. Well, thanks for sharing that. So I want to go back to one thing you said. You you mentioned that you you know you're not being trained to be a you weren't being trained to be a software engineer. You know it was one year. 
Um, so completely appreciate that and the effort that it would take to learn you know, any, any of the languages significantly. But could you maybe share for everybody a little bit more about that? Because you know, when people hear about digital methods, they often get scared of, do I need to be programming? Do I, you know, is it mathematical based? You know, can you maybe just dive a little bit deeper into what you actually were studying and, and how, you know, how uh, rigorous that was? So um, just to, to make that clear, I didn't do math almost not at all during high school. That's how the French system worked. I was very literature oriented and uh, I was scared to get into a, a computer like software engineer class, not software, but computer uh, language class. And uh, it was hard. You do need a bit of math, but if you don't have that, you can still understand so much um, and really be able to acquire the minimum language that is needed to communicate with computer engineers. So I had a class uh, for how to use um, R, the language R, and another one for Python. So we learned how to use a notebook, just like this virtual interface where you can use the language. How does the language actually work? So we're not able to really fully uh, write in the computer language, but we kind of know how it works. And, uh, and what are its limitations, which is really important when you are having a conversation with a computer engineer afterwards. So we'll learn how to use that. We'll learn how to use statistics. That was mostly with the R language. We learned the complexity of collecting data on social media. How do you, what kind of tool do you use to extract conversation on Twitter, on Reddit, on YouTube? How do you transform uh a sound-based conversation on YouTube into a text? And then how do you process this text? What tools exist to do that? Uh, and what are the many biases that can be implied in uh, processing, first collecting, then processing the data? Uh, all biases that are um, really at first a surprise when you start working uh, in the computer field, because you tend to think that it's very statistical, very rational and unbiased when it's actually really the contrary. Uh, so that's what I was being taught at the time. And data visualization also, because it's a different way to represent your data and like what you learn in traditional anthropology. I'd like to maybe, you know, just expand on that a little. Would you mind sharing, you know, a little bit about how things have changed since your program compared to what you're doing today? So now I'm working with computers engineers who do all the work. <laughs> um, so I don't have to do much, but I am capable of analyzing the data that they collect and, uh, and have my notes in uh, what they do and uh, sometimes warn them about the choices that they can make to filter data, for instance. Uh, so I, most of the time, what I've learned, I is now use as a consultancy, I advise, but I'm not able to apply on a daily basis computer language. I don't code myself. Um, so this is what has changed from now. At the time, at school, they were, of course, incentivizing, incentivizing us and pushing us to try to use the language ourselves. And uh, I'm going to be honest, I forgot most of it. <laughs> I wouldn't be able, I've, I've, I've done some very serious coding at the time. And now I just, I don't practice. It's just like any other language. If you don't practice, you forget about it. But I know enough and I remember enough. 
so I can have conversation now with the computer engineers I work with who develop themselves. They develop software. I'm just here to advise on how they filter, collect, and often if the data is highly qualitative or relates to online communities, they don't have the skill set to really do the analysis. Uh, this is the part of the job that I do. Tell me about the analysis process and how you might be combining more traditional kind of qualitative methods, you know, with some of the, you know, with some of the computational tools. So, for instance, when we need to answer a certain question and we're wondering the type of data we could collect, I would be the one advising, I would be one of the people that you could ask uh, advice on where to get that data. Um, because I spend way too much time on social media. Um, and uh, I'd be able to say this social media is great, but the type of metrics that it offers might not be the best fit for what we're trying to achieve right now. So uh, this is how I do the intermediary between what we need to collect. It's my observation, my daily observation in social media uh, will help tailor the way we collect or process data. And then what will happen is that the engineers collect the data, uh, they uh, process it in a certain way, and what comes out is very hard for them to assess, is it relevant or not? And that's when the anthropology can come in. For instance, if there's a topic that might seem insignificant to a data scientist, it could be very significant to an anthropologist. Things related to, I don't know, I think I can remember a topic that we had to deal with at some point where um, uh, the N-word was being used and um, my data scientist colleagues thought it was irrelevant when actually it was being used locally. Uh, by Black people who were using it for themselves, and they were talking about mental health issues. And that wasn't so visible at the beginning in the cluster, you know, of topics that uh, came out out of, the, out of the processing. When I spent more time on it, I could see that it was actually uh, Black communities talking about themselves and then talking about mental health. And it wasn't, I think this is more of a, an anthropological business rather than data science business, for sure. And do you collaborate with the engineers ever on, um, you know, data that might be collected from more traditional methods? So like, you know, you've gone out and you've done in-person observations and you've brought back some data. And then do you ever work, you know, using sort of digital methods to under make sense of that? Yes. So what could happen is sometimes I thought a topic that's emerging on social media, and I'm not sure how significant it actually is. Is it just me and my echo chamber, my uh, vulture bubble around me that is telling me that this is a trending topic when in reality it's not that big? I can have it go through a processing or a data collection with the engineers and they can check this out for me. Uh, so it could be something that I've seen on Instagram. And then I would ask them, do you have a way to uh, collect a bit of data with this and this keyword that I have identified throughout my network. And can you size it? Can you tell me if there's a community around it? Can we try to see if there's a network gravitating around those keywords or, for instance, those hashtags? And uh, sometimes I can come with my observation uh, online, those um, netnographies that are fully online, and ask them to assess this against statistics. And when you say network there um, and communities, it, it you know makes me think of network analysis. And so, 
that maybe brings us back to visualization. What what role do you see visualization, you know, playing? Is it is it a nice to have? You know, does it just help the process, or do you do you think some of these new visualizations are really a a must develop skill for everyone? I think just like any any display of data, it can be biased, and you have to be cautious, and you can always manipulate it to show what you want to show. But this is not true just for data visualization. This is true for any way you want to display your findings, right? Uh, so there are risks in that, but since it's visual, it can be even more powerful. And, uh, and um, this is the good part of it. And it can also be the risky part of it. Um, but when it comes to online data, or uh, I mean, digital data, it's hard not to have it go through data visualization. Because I think anthropology, I think anthropology, despite this might be controversial, I don't think it's very visual. Uh, we do study a lot of beautiful things. Uh, we do study a lot of objects, masks, dances, uh, tools, but um, we don't necessarily want to. This is so anthropology, and at least the way I was taught anthropology was so academic that it was hard to show things visually. It was hard to represent things with even just drawings when it was a necessity. You know, I studied feng shui. Feng shui is very visual. You can you have just books. Uh, by Taoist masters that show you the circulation of the energy and so on. And uh, this is not something that you're being trained to represent in anthropology. Uh, And I think when you work with digital data, that is even so dematerialized. So that lacks shape in some some ways. Um, It's very important that you visualize that. also, sometimes findings come out of the visualization, things that it's the tool for me to have emerge information that you wouldn't see any other way. So I think it's, it is a necessity. You just have to be careful in the way you process, display, and analyze, but just like anything, just like any other tool. So, you know, sort of building on that, data visualization is, is really just one piece of this bigger puzzle. Um, and I guess my question is, do you think, you know, I, and maybe you're subjective, I, I appreciate that, but do you think digital methods are something that really all anthropologists should be considering or getting into? You know, do you think there's a value to anyone's line of work? Yes, because there's nobody nowadays, almost nobody, that isn't subject to um, online spaces and digitization for, uh, for daily tasks. We're all subject to that now. This is part of our life. I would say not only Western countries, just like most countries nowadays, uh, have some form of daily productions and habits that go through this computer-mediated uh, interface. Um, and anthropologists are just not trained, not equipped uh, with what they should. And this is just this whole part of people's life that is eluded in traditional anthropology that we have no way to really study and this is a shame i think this is really a shame we're being trained to collect very sensitive data and to observe very sensitive behavior uh with sophisticated uh methods and that for me sounds crazy that we've not been pushing that we've not had this go through time and just evolve with modernity uh so um i think this is something that it should be part of the tool 
kit that is given to to young anthropologists. This should this be part of the toolkit, really. And how do you see that in your, you know, within your business context, really then translating into uh, into value for the organization? What does your role help contribute to? You know, and I'm talking like big picture, like you know, it's it helps contribute to strategy and insights, you know, things like that. Like, how do you how do you see digital anthropology fitting into every organization? That's a that's a very big question, but it's it, that is definitely worth answering. It depends on the business, of course. It depends on the activity. But overall, I had this habit of saying that anthropologists are like anti-bias machines. Um, they always put their fingers on things that no one wants to talk about, uh, or they think outside of the box, often outside of the Western-focused box. Uh, and, uh, and for me, this is extremely precious for most companies. Um, they also have this capacity to always put things that seem obvious in question, uh, question what's supposed to be obvious. Um, this kind of like self-reflection, this very meta capacity that anthropologists have uh, that is often very tiring, uh, it can also avoid costly mistakes sometimes for companies uh, when they can just assess, oh, this community or this client, they do it that way. And as an anthropologist, sometimes you can come in and be like, how do you know that uh, exactly? And by they, what do you mean by they? So we're being very obnoxious, to be honest. But uh, also, I think this is part of a role to question the obvious. And, and this is something that we do daily. I also think that sometimes the frameworks that we create, anthropologists are very good at creating taxonomies uh, for things that usually other sciences are not comfortable with. So anything that's human-related, we're good at creating taxonomies that are not too rigid. Um, and this come out, comes out very handy when you work with clients, because this is something that you very often do. Um, and for me, this is a strength that is very prevalent, very present in uh, anthropologist skills. So you're, some, at least some of your work you know, focuses on things like metaverse and blockchain. So along with digital anthropology, that is also somewhat, you know, challenged or contested oftentimes. You know, if I post something about digital anthropology or now AI, you know, I often instantly get a lot of messages talking about bias and, and, and that's all very biased privacy. All the issues are very real, very present uh, and need to be addressed. But there's also always this, you know, the, it, so it almost seems like it's, uh, a requirement to instantly just jump in and focus on like the negatives. And, and in that space, coming back to my question, blockchain and the metaverse, you know, are two that get beat up a lot, you know, two technologies that get beat up a lot as well as sort of uh, most people, many people seem to go right to the negative. So can you tell me, I know they're very different, but, you know, could you just speak a little bit about what you've learned by studying both the metaverse and blockchain and, you know, your perspective on them? For the metaverse first, I think uh, what it showed me is that, again, people always think they they come up with something very new when it wasn't. We very often reinvent the wheel, uh, as I say. We see things in, as innovative when they're not that innovative. Uh, metaverses or online spaces where people would have avatars or represent themselves in some ways. It dates back. You can find tracks of that in the 80s. 
you know? So um, we tend to think we're very innovative when not that much. Um, and also it, it shows to me that this, this ambivalent feeling of technophobia and technophilia is always there. And the more you try to push something supposedly innovative, the more people have this uh, allergic reaction to it. Um, and, and maybe those allergic reactions are more, um, how do you say they, they, they tend to attract more responses on social media. And that's why, uh, you feel like this is prevalent. This is what all you can see when in reality, there's a lot of very positive feedback to the metaverse as well. Um, I think a big part of the study that we did at L'Atelier, uh, for in our report, that's called the virtual economy. We studied how some people found a way to be themselves in the metaverse, either by because they have some form of disability and they can overcome that in the metaverse. Uh, some people who found jobs in the metaverse because they could create avatars or they could create uh, skins for their avatars. They could create homes. Uh, they could create anything from scratch and it just opened a new window of creativity, performance, businesses. Um, I think it takes time for researchers to formalize those spaces and show really what are the potential, the opportunities within them. When it just when it emerges, the only thing that you can see is people being very allergic to it and to change, and people trying to profit off it and just trying to make money out of it. That's what is comes up at first, but um, I think it will take time for people to realize the opportunities that are like within the metaverse, there are plenty. And, uh, and uh, I didn't doubt that. So I wasn't so surprised. But the idea that people can uh, either have a new form of job in the metaverse only or online spaces only, or that they can uh, find a complementary job in virtual spaces or a second image or a persona that they rely on and makes them feel safer. All of that is just fabulous. Uh, this is what I, I guess I learned studying the metaverse and on the blockchain. It's very similar. I feel like um, blockchain related um, assets, currencies, everything that has been related to NFTs, the non-fungible tokens and so on. The reaction to that, um, was pretty strong on the allergic side. And uh, and I thought that people were being very pessimistic around it. Uh, what I've learned from artists that um, use the blockchain as a way to secure partially or entirely some of their artworks, um, virtual artworks, is so interesting. It's not because the technology, when it's emerging, is very clunky, uh, that you should undermine its potential. And I think uh, the blockchain is really just, um, that's, that's controversial. Some people would say that it's already gone and it's not so emerging. I think personally that um, there's a lot to come for blockchain and it might not be in the way we, we think it could be. It's not what we've seen so far. It, it, will it will take on a different form. So yeah, that's so far, that's how I've been going through the crazy sphere of crypto enthusiasts. So just building on that, you had uh, an article that recently came out in Anthropology News. You mind sharing a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So with um, 
my colleague at the time, uh, digital anthropologist as well, uh, Anthony Kelly, we did a one year field work that was on and off because you have to deal with other things when you are in a company, you have other projects you work on, but you manage to have some time to do a bit of field work. And so we attended different events that were for NFT enthusiasts mostly, uh, but also crypto artists or crypto curators. We interviewed people that um, are in this field of crypto, so-called crypto art. So art that is um, um, often secured through the blockchain and sold through a blockchain. And um, the time that we spend with uh, with artists or creator, uh, we found that yes, they are guilty of being too optimistic and undermining sometimes the technical complexity of it all and the fact that not everyone can access those technologies. Uh, sometimes they uh, undermine that the technology is still uh, subject to scams or not fully secured yet. But they also acknowledge that um, the blockchain was an attempt to uh, to secure their art and nothing else has really been done over the last years. Although you had many different types of art that was uh, fully done through digital tools and fully uh, advertised online and nothing was really uh, offered to protect and sold that. So it is an attempt and, uh, and it was good to have some time to talk with them. So it was this sort of like mini anthropological field that we were able to do. Part of that was online where we would just look at different art pieces and how they were being advertised by creators or artists themselves. Uh, some artworks were uh, interactive artworks within metaverses. So it was interesting to watch how the two different spaces were meeting and uh, integrating to create art. Um, it was also very interesting to see how uh, this new technology was coming or hoping to disrupt the traditional art world and how somehow and some aspects and managed to do that. Uh, so it was a mix. It was definitely um, uh, an innovative, a hybrid method research where we spend some time in events with uh, the crypto enthusiasts and partially online too. And uh, we proceeded to collect data about the artworks. So the different platforms online that would sell those um, uh, blockchain secured artworks, we decided to extract the description of those um, artworks and then process, do text mining, try to see what were the most recurring terms. And we were trying to find out if we could find patterns in the way crypto artists were describing their work and trying to sell their work. Um, so it was really, uh, uh, what I say, a sort of like a prototype study of how you mix both of the both world, uh, so data science and, uh, and uh, digital anthropology. And uh, it was great. And I'm happy that uh, we found a way to summarize all this in an article and that the um, American uh, Association, uh, Anthropology Association got interested into, into our study. So you also have a few other reports, I believe, you've put together. Do you want to maybe just mention any of those? Or, uh, Yeah, sure. Well, with, with um, L'Atelier, we've also worked on um, a, a topic that implies social mobility. 
This is a sort of continuation of the first report we created about the virtual economy. So we asked ourselves, can technology, what role technology um, play in uh, social mobility? Uh, does it help some people move up? Does it actually uh, automate some jobs and um, make some people stagnate uh, in their uh in their zone, uh, in their social class. So we asked ourselves all those questions. We also reviewed the newest jobs that are emerging thanks to, to, to digital technologies. And, um, and I believe it's an interactive report. I really suggest you go read it because it's wonderful. It's been uh, uh, designed by um, this company, Gladai, that does interactive websites. And it's really a way to have you to immerse yourself in what technology can do uh, to your social class and the interaction between classes and digital current technology. Um, yeah, I was very happy to be part of that and um, suggest you go read it. Well, I'll certainly link to it. And if uh, anybody wanted to get in touch with you, you can find me on LinkedIn. Well, Natalie, thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Matt. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. To learn everything you need to break into business anthropology and why business anthropology is one of the best lenses for contributing to business success, visit my website at madarts.me, where I cover many topics related to business anthropology and beyond. There you will find all the podcast episodes, blogs, and news. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.